Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a Holiday Week Clips show featuring former curator and historian Kelly Morgan. Earlier this week, Charles Venable, the director of New Fields, the institution formerly and best known as the Indianapolis Museum of Art, resigned in the wake of the museum's publishing a series of racist job postings via the executive search firm M. Oppenheim. Once its racism became a national news story and after Venable resigned, Newfields released a broad institutional apology that started, quote, We are sorry. We have made mistakes. We have let you down. We are ashamed of Newfields' leadership and of ourselves. We have ignored, excluded, and disappointed members of our community and staff. We'll have a link to the entire apology on the show page at manpodcast.com. The final event that instigated change in Indianapolis was a letter that called for Venable's resignation as well as major board reforms that was signed by 85 Newfield staffers. The instigating event of the public crisis at Newfields was the resignation of curator Kelly Morgan last summer. Morgan departed the museum via a much-circulated letter that specifically addressed the museum's racism and dedication to whiteness. Just before resigning, Morgan published an assessment of the art museum field titled To Bear Witness, Real Talk About White Supremacy in Art Museums Today, in multiple venues, including in Burnaway and the Indianapolis Recorder. We'll have a link to it at manpodcast.com as well. Just before Morgan left Indianapolis, she joined me to discuss the challenges and opportunities within presenting permanent collection galleries of 19th century American art, when most American art museums' collections of the period consist of primarily white artists. This week's episode is a re-airing of that conversation. Kelly Morgan, who has done great service to the field over the last year, after the break. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Thiebaud are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska presents Bemis Alumni Art Talks, virtual conversations with Bemis alumni and Rachel Adams, Bemis Chief Curator and Director of Programs. The series kicks off with 2020 Bemis Alumni Award winner Diani Whitehawk, a Lakota visual artist and independent curator based in Minneapolis, on February 9th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Whitehawk was a Bemis 2017-18 exhibiting artist in Monarchs, brown and native contemporary artists in the path of the butterfly. Whitehawk will speak about her practice, her take on abstraction through traditional Lakota techniques, and her multi-channel video work Listen, which showcases indigenous women speaking their language in the specific region of its origin. RSVP to receive Zoom details at bemiscenter.org. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. 
Return to Palmyra is a dual language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu slash Palmyra. And we're back. Kelly Morgan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's my pleasure to be here. You recently undertook a project to reinstall the Indianapolis Museum of Arts Galleries of American Art. And as you and I both know, art museum collections of 19th century American art tend to feature almost entirely white makers. Can you give us an idea of what you had to work with in the Indie collection? What Black artists from the 19th and, say, first decade or so of the 20th century are absent from the IMA collection? Did you thus not have the ability to to play with, present, and interpret? And, and who is and was there? Well, in all honesty, Tyler, there was one. 1867, yeah. Yes, we do have a Robert Selden Duncanson, a really beautiful landscape. And other than that, you know, there was there's nobody. Right. So let me just jump in with the nobody. There is no Joshua Johnson, no Edmonia Lewis, no Bannister, no Tanner. There is a Tanner Stewart in the Indianapolis collection, William Edward Scott, a painting from 1912. There's no Aaron Douglas. And then Black artists begin to be present in the IMA collection with two works, one a painting from Jacob Lawrence and one painting by Horace Pippin. The Jacob Lawrence painting is a long-term loan. We do have two Jacob Lawrence prints. But yeah, you're pretty much right. There is an Augusta Savage. So yeah, it's it's scant. But most museum collections, <laughs> right, are are scant in that area. One, I'm a critical race cultural historian. You know, I'm not a traditional art historian. One very key foundation, you know, to my curatorial practice is using, right, so reinterpreting works by white artists, you know, from the colonial period you know, through the antebellum period, Civil War, you know, through the 19th century and early 20th century to tell stories about communities of color, artists of color, indigenous nations, the like. Because what I found out in just doing archival research, not just here at IMA, which started with a painting that I was working with at the Birmingham Museum of Art, you can find people of color attached to either the artist or or the object just through archival research. So that got me thinking, thinking about that one painting. Um, it was painting by W.S. Hedges, 1837, maybe. I'm probably getting the, the year not totally right. Um, but it was called a race meeting at Jacksonville. And, you know, it was a, pretty much about, you know, the presence of free people of color and like the social activities of free people of color and white folks and black folks, you know, in Jacksonville, Alabama. And so I said, well, if this is the case, you know, if this painting exists in this one institution, in one city, in one state, imagine how many stories we are missing or just have been uh, deliberately erased, right, deliberately buried or deliberately ignored. When you think about artwork in the 19th century in American art museums. So I kind of put a pin in that mood of path of, did the exact same thing with their Benjamin West painting, Penn's Treaty with the Indians. And it was really interesting with that painting because I was actually, it was ancestral research. Literally, if it was seeing if that painting had been interpreted differently, as much as it's connected to the first family of Philadelphia, you know, the Maury family, as well as the Penn family, 
it could also be linked to the two most prominent African-American families in colonial Philadelphia. So I was like, okay, same, you know, ask myself, same question. You know, this is just one painting and one institution in one city, right, in one state. Did you find opportunities to do that within the collection from the 19th century in Indianapolis? Or did you kind of have to wait, as it were, until you got into the early 20th? Not yet. So as the reinstallation is scheduled, like in terms of our exhibition schedule, the way that it's structured is it's in phases. <laughs> so this first, this current phase, or this first phase is purely colonial work, which is helpful for me because our colonial collection is like tiny, you know, but it's really small, but it's really great stuff. And how I kind of bridge that gap or fill those holes, quote unquote, is through using contemporary work. So it actually hasn't happened yet. It's actually slated to open in June of 2021. But because the idea or like the sort of news of me doing it has gotten around the field, people think I've already completed it. <laughs> and we actually haven't started it yet. We actually haven't even started it yet. But I do have the concepts concept or the interpretation kind of conceptualized. The other aspect of it that I'm attempting to bring Black voices or voices of color into the narrative is that I'm having the community. So people who are Black and brown people who live in the communities that surround the, in the institution write the interpretation with me in our interpretation team. As we get into the early 20th century, there are a couple things you've done in the galleries. One of them involves, perhaps unexpectedly, a Tiffany window. It does. I call it, I call it the museum's sacred space. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the window is called Angel of the Resurrection. It was designed for Tiffany by Frederick Wilson, about whom I know nothing. Tell us what you saw, found, realized, recognized in, in, in that window. And mind you, this is not a room-sized window. This is, you know, like we would have in a room in our house. This is a massive big Tiffany thing. <laughs> yeah, it was commissioned for a church actually here in Indianapolis as a homage to Benjamin Harrison. It was commissioned by his widow to sort of pay homage to him as a son of Indiana as well as being the 23rd president. And I don't remember the actual date that IMA acquired it, but pretty much the space that it's in, we call it the Rotunda, so it's a round gallery. 1972, by the way. And it's pretty much been there, you know, since we acquired it. And it really is a very contemplative space. So, you know, yoga takes place in, in that gallery. You can find people having these kind of really spiritual moments, you know, or just, con you know, quiet, contemplative sort of self-introspective moments. And the Tiffany windows on one, you know, sort of on one side of the gallery and then facing it is a really ethereal white female nude by William McGregor Paxson. So when I initially assumed the position, you know, going up there, I was like, this is really interesting. To me, it was observing the window which depicts Archangel Michael, you know, sort of raising us off from the day at the second coming of Christ. And Wilson clads him in like the chain mail as in a, as a knight, you know, like this crusading knight. And he has his, I think it's his right arm kind of raised. And then you think, you know, raising the dead, whatever. But again, as a critical race culture historian, I was like, that's real Gilded Age, you know, <laughs> clan signification. Hmm. You know, and then looking across 
the gallery, at, again, at this white female nude, I was like, oh, okay. And then what was actually happening or what was the kind of the reasoning, right? That, you know, you have the, re- the redemption period takes place where you have these quote unquote, right, crusading knights saving the South from newly freed African-Americans. And the fictive reasoning was the protection of white femininity. So again, in my mind, I was like, this isn't coincidental due to the fact that Again, Benjamin Harrison is was its twenty third president. He was in the you know he served in the Union Army. You know, however, during his presidency, lynching was at its highest. And so, again, thinking about the broader cultural histories and how to bring that in to visitors' understanding that American art is also propaganda. This depends on whose propaganda it is, you know? So due to the fact that both of the window and the painting, you know, were crafted during that, the sort of Gilded Age or what we've come to know as the Gilded Age, but in African-American history, and I think even more specific American history is called the Nadir because the urban North was able to industrialize in the way that it was, right? Because Jim Crow segregation and sort of the re-enslavement of free African-Americans is happening in the South. And so I saw that that narrative kind of played for me and I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll come back to this, right? You can't like start a position and just jump into that. So, <laughs> so I waited and as the universe would have it, a private collector who's had a really close relationship with the institution, you know, since the nineties owned or owns a Robert Colescott in the title of that painting is To Know One's Past is the Key to the Future of St. Sebastian. And that particular painting is a figure sort of rendered in that typical St. Sebastian iconography. But the figure is half white woman, half black male, right? And then behind this St. Sebastian figure is a white male, a bust of a white male and a bust of a black woman, right? With nooses sort of connecting the four figures together. So when the collector reached out and he said, yeah, and he said, you know, hey, Kelly, you know, I have this painting, downsizing, uh, would you like it? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and he said, where are you going to put it? I said, in the Rotunda Gallery. And I had already done a couple of smaller, because I like to call these things, you know, gallery interventions. So I'd done a couple of smaller interventions to see how the public would react to see how docents would react and just the overall kind of museum community. Let me jump in with a couple of underlining details. The title of the Paxton, uh, and I am not making this up, is Glow of Gold, Gleam of Pearl, which makes the whiteness of the subject all the more shouting. It's a 1906 work, and it is a larger-than-life-size nude, relatively rare thing in American art. The Tiffany windows are roughly 28 feet long and 14 feet high, and they came into the IMA collection in 1972 as a gift from the First Meridian Heights Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, a church, I assume, that descended from First Presbyterian, which was the church that purchased the windows and installed them in 1905. When you're conceiving an installation such as the one you've described and are developing the ideas you outlined. Do you put them in a wall text and that's it, you're done? Or are there ways in which you try to extend the ways in which those ideas permeate the institution? So typically, with particularly with the Rotunda reinstall, 
I spent a lot of time with the docents, you know, so we did basically, it was like teaching a critical race theory class (laughs) and teaching reconstruction, post-reconstruction history, which a lot of people just don't really know. Or, Or think isn't applicable to the North. True. Yeah, that's another, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. You know, so there were those sessions and then all of a sudden they just kind of stopped. You know, there were like some staff changes and this, you know, narrative of what this should be, this should kind of live in our education department. And so I was kind of written out of that equation. But again, me being the troublemaker that I am, I just started meeting with the docents, you know, outside of the institution. And, you know, to continue those, you know, to continue those conversations. Let me jump in real quick with a quick explanation on docents. For non-American listeners, docents are volunteers, typically, who kind of sit between the institution and the community. So when people visit the museum, it is quite often volunteer docents who have been guided through an understanding of an artwork or an installation by the education or curatorial staff. It is quite often the docents who are the, the literal eyes and mouth and and human embodiment of the institution when people come and visit. So, I mean, this has been my experience with docents at all of the institutions I've worked for, but coming here, it was really interesting because there was a group who were concerned, you know, about issues, you know, very interested and very concerned, particularly with so many school groups of kids of color, right, coming in. And they had taken upon themselves to study African-American art history, to study African-American cultural history. I was shocked, or not so much shocked, but I was so like elated because they had read some pretty heavy stuff. (laughs) And, you know, within my first couple of weeks, you know, introduced themselves to me and said, you know, Kelly, we've been really interested in this stuff, but we haven't always felt as confident because we're like, you know, older middle-aged white women that we don't necessarily know because it wasn't, again, it wasn't a museum initiative. You know, it was just a group of them who had gotten together. And I said, oh, absolutely, you know, we need more white women, you know, to to take that initiative, particularly like, you know, of your generation and your age group. So I was ecstatic, you know, about it. So I knew that I would have like their support, you know, for majority of what I was planning to do in the galleries. To answer your, you know, initial question of like what the extension is, it's really me, like I said, again, in the docents, you know, who are adamant about it not just lead tours, but may even hold seminars in to explain it, you know, so people can register and they can come. There were a couple um, of programs that we did, you know, where um, I did a few and and some of our lead docents, you know, did a few of those. Outside of that, I have like what I call these, like I said, gallery interventions or these other vignettes based on also loans, you know, that private collectors around the country, you know, have been willing to give me to kind of extend the narrative or to at least show visitors that something different, you know, is happening in the American galleries. Because the American galleries haven't changed much since, I would say, 2012. How much time does it take to do and share a repositioning or a reinterpreting of, of a couple of artworks in the sense that, you know, there may be, just for the sake of round numbers, in an institution's American art galleries, there might be a hundred works, and we just talked about two. So, full installation would probably take about five years, you know, if not longer, which is why it's happening in pieces. 
you know, as somebody that's doing kind of like anti-racism, curatorial activism, right, as well as, you know, critical race, curatorial analysis, even just to do, you know, those short installations, you know, based based on, you know, the loans that come up, it takes me at least, you know, five to six months. So for a thorough institutional reexamination of its American galleries, and we're picking just one curatorial area, many museums are, you know, 10, 12, 15, 18 departments or areas. It sounds like you're saying this can't really be a one-person initiative. There has to be a thorough institutional commitment there too. Oh, absolutely. Because it would, it changes everything else. You know, something I've, you know, I've said since I've been here, or at least when I first got here, right? Because, you know, you start doing the work, even in the small ways in which I've done it, it was the same thing at PAFA, you know, and then the white supremacy culture starts to rear its head. It starts to push back. And, you know, and I've said to my leadership there, as well as the the leadership here at IMA, like, you can't hire a curator like me to do this work and not change everything else. It's everything. So, you know, the one exhibition that I did do was my Samuel Levi Jones show, Left of Center, you know, which dealt with all of these issues in in terms of, you know, and just in regards of contemporary art and everything that had to happen to that, you know, with that show, you know, in terms of fundraising, in terms of marketing, because it required different mechanisms. I was doing all of that work and not by myself, of course, but it was definitely not an institutional buy-in from top to bottom as it would have been for any other major exhibition. We don't know how to market, you know, to black communities. So we're just going to send it out, you know, in these, and it was like these very kind of quiet ways. And I was like, well, that's not going to (laughs) work, you know? So I took it upon myself and many of my other colleagues to market it to black communities. Same thing with the fundraising, right? Where it was like, we don't know exactly who we can ask, you know, or how to necessarily engage black donors. So our one black, you know, development officer took it upon herself to kind of build the fundraising momentum for it. It was just like these types of these types of ways that, you know, museums don't necessarily and not don't necessarily, they don't, they don't have the structures, you know, for this kind of work. So if you're reinstalling an entire section of the permanent collection to create a more inclusive narrative, to include more culturally relevant content. I would say just the research portion of it, Tyler, like just the research to make sure that that the institution itself is doing it properly would take two years. That's one of the frustrations that I'm having right now, you know, is that because a lot of the work that I've done here at IMA, actually not a lot of it, all of it has demonstrated, you know, just how badly, you know, the institution needs anti-racism and inclusivity, implicit bias training unequivocally, you know, from top to bottom. And there have been, you know, some of my other colleagues who have done programs or who have done, you know, exhibitions or made particular acquisitions about more culturally relevant things or things that are dealing with, you know, police brutality or race, class, gender, sexuality, you know, you name it. You know, again, these same iterations, right, of white supremacy culture or right patriarchal culture, you know, raise, rears its head. You know, in terms of my, you know, American reinstallation, I'm like, it can't happen if the institution doesn't do that training first. So even before you can start the research for something, <laughs> you know, any or even decide that you're going to reinstall a whole collection, you have to take the temperature of the institution to see if they're even capable 
right, of creating the space for that, for the reinstall and like the narrative, right, of the reinstall to even happen because the pushback is ridiculous. And, you know, that's something that's, again, kind of frustrating me about what I'm calling, you know, this current come to Jesus moment that the museum field is having, you know, because of Black Lives Matter and the heinous murder of of George Floyd. One of my biggest, I wouldn't necessarily say complaints, but like, you know, just kind of question, you know, to the to the numerous museum directors, you know, funding org CEOs that I've talked to in the last two weeks. It's like, yes, we know that, the, you know, this is an urgent moment, right? Nobody's denying that. However, where was the museum world's urgency when Trayvon Martin died, when Sandra Bland died? When Eric Garner was murdered, when Tamir Rice was murdered, like this is, you know, George Floyd's murder is, was not, it's not like an anomaly, (laughs) you know, you know, that's my one thing. The second thing was a lot of the solutions, you know, and questions that are being asked that museums are asking themselves, you know, that other folks from the outside are asking museums are the same questions, you know, that were being asked in the nineties you know, which were very similar to the questions that were being asked in the 70s. You know, so it's like two, you know, every 20 years, you know, we kind of have this crisis moment. Oh, my God, we need to change. And nothing ever happens because the conversation is never about how institutions are not actually designed to make this kind of change. Too many art museums are invested in confirming the canon rather than challenging it. Yes, I'm at a place, you know, in my career right now where I'm tired. <laughs> you know, I say all the time, I'm so tired of talking to different white people about the same stuff. <laughs> and, you know, it's very clear that it's purposeful. You know, it's very clear that it's not an issue of like, oh, you know, museum directors or board members don't know, or, you know, even high level, you know, management, senior leadership. It's not that they don't know. The evidence is, is clearly demonstrates that they don't care. And what happens when we start approaching the work from that perspective? It's really interesting to take into account the sort of falsehood of art museum missions, right? So this idea that, you know, it's a place for everybody, you know, and it's a place where people can be, you know, equal, this, that, and the other thing has never been true. And we know it's never been true. You know, the idea of because museums care for collections, you know, they are, you know, inherently caring spaces and institutions. Also something that we know has never been true. I was to say, and not just only in regards to, you know, museums being so white in these communities of color, but just the class, you know, oppression and hierarchy that happens within institutions, you know, interns and graduate assistants you know, are treated like dirt. You know, you have, I mean, just the sexual harassment, you know, gender inequity. And then conservators and registrars and preparators, same thing, you know, are treated like just total crap. All of my institutions, including <laughs> IMA, you know, I've, I've stepped into, so maybe it's me. Well, no, I mean, you know, another example is salary levels for people expected to have graduate degrees. And, and how low the salaries are. Yeah, that's what I was getting ready to say. It's like this, you know, Birmingham Path and IMA coming upon starting each position at each institution. One of the issues, you know, was the preparators and the registrars saying to leadership, I don't know how many more times we have to say this, but it's too much work, right? We are overworked. It is too much. I remember in at Birmingham, you know, it was it, the phrase was like, it is inhumane. 
you know, and this whole idea that like directors or like I said, again, senior staff or curators can have these huge ideas and there's no consideration, you know, or very little, you know, consideration to the people who are actually making those ideas come to fruition. And like you said, you know, I would say all the time, like, how are we having, you know, you sit in meetings and people are like, oh, there are white collar workers in, you know, in museums, and there are blue collar workers in museums. And you're like, everybody in registration and conservation in, in the prep, the prep department or installation department, like has graduate degrees. So how are we making, you know, that bifurcation? And, and so much of it, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely ludicrous. You know, it's just really ludicrous and it's just, it's a complete and utter mythology. And that was, again, something as a, you know, just looking at as a curator and kind of quote unquote, as like this outsider, you know, I was like, it's all a lie. Like everybody's running around like the really exotic chicken, you know, like holding up, <laughs> you know, the fact that this is an exotic chicken. And I'm like, it's a duck. Like, I don't know what the rest of y'all are looking at, you know, <laughs> but it is very clearly a duck. And that was fascinating to me, you know, and it's like the maintenance of the lie is what kind of holds the institutions together, you know, so that oppression and discrimination is built into the lifeblood of the institution itself, because the institutions alone, right, when you think about white cultural hegemony, right, and white supremacy, uphold a lie. People don't like to talk about it in that language, you know, or don't like to, to state it in that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, I think that museum directors who think that they have hired a black curator and that they've done something are the problem. It's like, okay, got that, you know, it's like, got check the diversity box, you know, and then they like move on to whatever, you know, the next thing is. And I've worked very hard in my career to push back against being the kind the token, you know, diversity hire. You know, as James Baldwin said so eloquently, like I am not your Negro. What I did not take into account, which is kind of which is what I'm struggling with now, or you know, just trying to give myself a break from is the trauma from all of that. Cause it's 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 grueling. You know, it it really is, you know, and you have to have the courage, you have to, you know, have the bravery. Sometimes it, you know, I can't tell you how many times where I just have to say, okay, go. You know? <laughs> You know, where I have to like kind of prep, you know, prop myself up because I'm just like, if I say this, I'm gonna get fired, you know, but, I, but I'm also like, if I don't say it, my, it crushes, it's soul crushing. Kelly Morgan, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.